chapter 9. We'll be reading verses uh, 6 through 18. Uh, now, Romans uh, 9 through 11 uh, is a unit uh, in, in the scriptures in the book of Romans. And so a lot of the same themes uh, crop up. And Paul is making uh, one extended argument through this section regarding Jews and then Gentiles. And I can't do a sermon, though, on 9, 10 and 11 uh, all in, in 40 or 45 minutes. So I figured you didn't want to be here till like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So we have to break it up uh, in, in the middle of things. And that is just to say that I can't say everything that I want to say uh, this week. And uh, even last week I said uh, that was sort of the precursor to talking about the doctrine of election. And that was last week's Paul's love for the lost. And as we go in, uh, you'll begin to see also in chapter 10, uh, Paul's heart for evangelism and the importance of sharing our faith. Uh, and so all to say, uh, just keep in mind what is coming. And I encourage you in the coming weeks as we deal with these verses, uh, read chapter nine again and again, read chapter 11, 12. Uh, if you want, read the whole book of Romans again. Uh, but we're going to be in chapter nine, uh, verses six through 18 uh, this morning. Follow along as we read the word of God. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year. I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scriptures say, uh, says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raise you up that I might show you my power, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom from these scriptures, that you would uh, teach us and instruct us and that you would open our hearts to to understand these these difficult and sometimes challenging uh, sections of of the word of God. Uh, I pray most of all that we would have a sense of your your great majesty, a sense of your awesome glory, how wondrous you are, that you did not have to save anyone and yet have chosen uh, to save a people. And may, Lord, we delight in your goodness, even while these things at times are a mystery to us. And we praise you for who you are, and we want to worship you. And we just ask that you would give me the words to say from your word, that it would be your word that we hear today. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. For some of you this morning, talking about uh, God's election, talking through these verses, will be uh, a little bit new, perhaps. And you may hear some things that, that challenge you a little bit. And I want to encourage you this morning that we need to be a people who stick to what Scripture says. And so the question we should always be asking ourselves and wrestling with is, what does Scripture say? All of our doctrine, all of our teaching, everything that we do and believe in this life needs to come from the word of God, not from something that men 
have made up. When I was in college, I knew a friend. I had a friend, uh, and she really did not like the doctrine of election. And we would talk about it and, and kind of as, as college students, you know, you, you think you know everything about everything. And so we would get into these debates and, and all this stuff. And she would just get really fired up. And this is not who God is. This is not what God does. Uh, a few years later, ran into her again. And she had completely changed her view and, and come around to believe something that I would consider biblical that God chooses a people from before the foundations of the world. And we were sitting down with her and her husband, who was also a friend uh, of mine from our college days, and I finally just asked her, and I said, what happened? You used to be passionately fiery against this, and now you, now you believe it. And she said, I kept reading Romans 9, and I kept reading it. I kept reading it, and I didn't like what it said, but I couldn't get around what it said. And I kept reading it. I encourage you to be persistent in your study of Scripture in that way. We're going to talk about these things this week and next week, and then we'll continue on through chapter 9, uh, 10, and actually we'll continue on into chap- yeah, chapters 10 and 11, and we'll try to pull all the pieces together, and I certainly, like I said, can't say everything that I'd wish to say in one week. And so you're always welcome to, to come, and if you have questions, you want to talk about it more, I'd love to do that, but my challenge is this, continue to read Scripture Study it for yourself and say, what does the Word of God say? Our main point this morning from this text is simply this. God's purpose in election will stand. And you can see that in verse 11. In order that God's purpose in election might continue. God has a purpose and He will carry it out. You cannot thwart the hand of God. As we read in our Scripture reading, God sits in heaven and He does as He pleases. We can't come to Him and question Him. Why should you do it? And why this way? Notice first this morning that God is the one who calls based on election. God calls people to salvation based on election. And so Paul starts out the verses that we're looking at today and notes to us that God's promises have not failed. And this really flows into what we were talking about last week, where Paul has this love for the lost Israelites. And he says, in effect, these are God's people. They have the oracles of God. They have the adoption. They have the glory, the temple, the Messiah comes to them through the the fleshly line of David. And he says, these are my kinsmen and I would die for them. And not only die for them, but he says, I'd be willing to be cut off, to be accursed and go to hell for them. And so he's passionate about this evangelism. And then it leads you to the question to say, if all of these Jewish people who had all of these promises from God, who had all of these good gifts in the covenants and the Old Testament, if they are not believing that Jesus is the Messiah, has God's Word failed? Now think about that for a moment. Israel is set apart from all the other nations. She has given these wondrous promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that she will be this great nation, but more than just a nation and temporal blessings, it's that she will receive salvation and the Messiah will come through her. And here we are in Paul's day. All of this has happened. The Word of God has been fulfilled. The New Covenant has been inaugurated. And by and large, the majority of Israelites and Jewish people at this time are rejecting the Word of God. And so the question is, God made these promises. God said He would do this. And yet we're not seeing it. Has God's Word failed? Verse 6, But it is not as though God's Word has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So God has 
chosen his people. He has chosen Israel to be that nation that was special in the Old Testament that bore the name of God. And yet they're rejecting the word of God. And so Paul will say in chapter 11, verse one, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. And he talks then about a remnant out of the people that are being saved. And he uses the analogy uh, to Elijah's day where there was 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. And God was preserving people. But Paul is saying this in verse 9 or verse 6. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And so he's using Israel in in two different ways. Uh, you'll remember uh, Jacob, the son of Isaac, had his name changed to Israel. And out of that came the twelve nations. And so not everyone who is descended from Israel, meaning not everyone who is Jewish in their, their lineage, does he say, not everyone who descends from Israel belongs to Israel, meaning a spiritual Heritage, meaning a spiritual lineage. And so now he's going to go on and he's really the next few verses are about him unpacking this. But he wants you and I to understand the word of God is not failing. This is the plan and purpose of God. And we need to trust that God will do what he promises to do. And that includes saving a people. And because he's planned it from before the foundations of the world, he will actually carry it out. And I can trust God. So look at verses uh, six, seven and eight. But it's not as though the word of God has failed for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel and not all the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Or not, yes, excuse me, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, though through Isaac shall your offspring be named. But this means it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise who are counted as offspring. So he kind of sounds like he's saying two different things, but, but follow the logic here. The idea is not everybody who shares Abraham's DNA shares in the promise. Not everybody who is literally born from the line of David or the line of Isaac or the line of Israel necessarily becomes a partaker in the promise of God. And so you may be a child of Abraham and a child of the flesh in that sense, but you're not necessarily a child of God. It's not automatic that you're if you're born with a certain DNA or in a certain place or a certain way that you're automatically a child of God, not necessarily a child of promise. So here Paul is making the argument from the Old Testament history to prove that not everybody that comes from Abraham's family necessarily receives salvation. Not everyone who comes as part of the physical line partakes of the spiritual promise. And so God had called Abraham in the Old Testament. He had said in Genesis 12, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and dishonor those uh, and those and him who dishonors you. I will curse in you. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the passage goes on and says this promise is to your seed. We translate that in the English into your offspring, into your descendants. But what we see as scripture unfolds is that not all of the offspring, not all of the descendants, if I can put it this way, not all of Abraham's kids become an heir to the promise that was given to the offspring. And so Paul is unpacking this. The promise of the seed is through Isaac. Quoting Genesis 21.12, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Remember who Isaac's half-brother was? His older half-brother? Ishmael. I ask you this. 
was Ishmael, a descendant of Abraham. Yeah, not Abraham and Sarah, but Abraham and Hagar. Is he a recipient of the promise? No. Not everybody in Abraham's line partakes of the promise. So you remember what happened. They were Sarah was too old to bear a child, and instead of trusting God, she says to Abraham, Hey, why don't you go sleep with my servant Hagar? Have a child through her. Then, you know, then you can, we'll, we'll, it's kind of like saying, you know, I'm not sure that God is going to keep his word, and so we'll try to do it for him. And so they end up kind of trying to do a runaround on, on God. And so Ishmael is born from Hagar, and, and God then comes along later. The three servants come along right before Sodom and Gomorrah, and they say within a year Sarah will, will bear a child. And, of course, both her and Abraham laugh. Abraham laughs first. Sarah laughs a little later. And, and they're like 90-plus years old. How many people do you know 90-plus years have kids? And this is God opening the womb, and this is the gift of God. And so then you have these two kids running around. You have Ishmael, the older brother, much older, a few years, and Isaac, the little kid. And you know how brothers fight sometimes. And God says it's through Isaac, not Ishmael, that the seed will come, that the promise will go. Verse 8, Paul draws this conclusion. This means that it is not the children of flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. So, Isaac and Ishmael are half-brothers. They are both from the flesh of Abraham, and yet one is given the promise and the other is not. Now, Ishmael is given some temporal blessings and God takes care of him. But so far as we can tell in Genesis, he never has salvation. And so Paul is drawing this argument that not all from Israel, not all of the physical line actually belong to Israel, actually become a child of God. And why is this? Not every physical descendant receives the promise Paul, again, you look at the context and he's saying it's not like God's word has failed. He is answering the question, why is it that there are many today in Israel who are the physical line of Abraham that aren't actually partaking of the promise? They are rejecting the Messiah. And so he goes on and he gives us another example. If it wasn't enough to deal with Ishmael and Isaac, you might be able to say, well, you know, the reason God didn't choose Ishmael is because that wasn't Sarah's son. They had two different mothers. He gives us another example. Isaac and Rebekah. Look at verse 10. And not only so, but when Rebekah conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. In other words, he's saying, now think of this scenario. Isaac and Two children are in the womb of Rebekah at the same time. In everything, in motherly lineage, in fatherly lineage, they are exactly the same. And why does the blessing of the promise, this inheritance of salvation, go to the line of Jacob, which becomes Israel, and not to Esau? Was there something different about Jacob and Esau? They were born in the same womb. And even by the cultural standards of the day, Esau is born first. And we would expect him by privilege and right to be the one who inherits. Look at verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's promise of election might continue... Not because of works, but because of him who calls. And then look at verse 12. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And that's God speaking in that verse from Malachi there. Election is not based upon what we have done or what we will do, but on God's purpose. Notice what it says here. Before they were born, 
before they had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works. Not because of how they would act or how they would live. It was not God looking ahead and saying, I see that Jacob is going to be the better believer here. He's going to be the better son. He's going to respond to me. And so we'll make the promise go to him. It's before all that. God says the older will serve the younger. And if you read through the Genesis narrative, guess which one is worse? You could arguably make the case that Jacob is worse. He's certainly more deceptive than Esau. Esau, in Hebrews chapter 12, is called uh, sexually immoral and unholy. He certainly he sells his birthright to Isaac, so he's spurning uh, the gift of God. And Excuse me, uh, not to Isaac. He sells it to Jacob. And yet, Jacob is a deceiver. Jacob is manipulative. He puts on that that hair from the, the goat and because his brother's very hairy and walks into his, his dad's presence who's blind and says, I'm your son Esau. You can bless me now. He's a trickster. He's the younger brother that you despise because he's always conniving. And he's not as strong and as fast and as good of an athlete as the older brother. But he's sneaky. point is this. They're both wicked. And one was not better than the other. This is the mystery of the plan and purpose of God. That God elects people to salvation. And it's not based on who we are or what we've done or what we will do. Or it's not based upon the the potential that we have. That God does things out of His sovereignty that we don't often understand. John chapter 6, verse 44 says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so God chose Jacob, not Esau. Verse 12, the older will serve the younger. That's from Genesis 25-23. That's the actual statement when it's in the womb. It says, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples are within you. Uh, you shall be, uh, from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And so we have the line of the Edomites that comes from Esau. And they don't receive the promise, even though they're descended from Abraham. And we have the Israelites who come from Jacob, who become the nation that receives the promise. And so in Malachi, God says to Israel, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say... How have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. Why did the promise go to one and not the other? They were both equal. They were both bad. It isn't because of their works or their response or their goodness, or their desire. It wasn't because one had sinned more and the other less. But Scripture says, in order that God's purpose and election might continue. Not because of works, but because of Him who calls. So God redeems Jacob. He gives the line of the promise to him and not to Esau. If you're tracking this argument about election, if you're tracking with what Paul is saying, you may be asking yourself the question, isn't this unfair? Isn't this unjust? This doesn't sound right. I think if you ask that question, you're understanding the passage right because Paul goes on and he answers that very question. He says in verse 14, What then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. In other words, if you're following what he's saying, you might be tempted to think, is God unfair here? He's choosing one and not the other? And Paul says, no. 
Absolutely not. And so our second point is this, and we put it in the form of a question. Does election mean that God is unjust? And the answer is no. Consider who you are in your sinfulness. Consider what you and I deserve. You know what would be fair? For all of us to be condemned. You know what would be just? For all of us to go to hell. That would be justice. And the mystery of it is that God would save anyone. And so it says in our passage, uh, God, look at verse 15. For it's, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God in his will determines to have mercy and compassion on whom he will have mercy and compassion. God can have mercy on who he wants and he can have compassion on who he wants. In other words, God is under no compulsion to save anyone. There's nothing inside of us that can twist the hand of God and say, you have to save me. All that I have to bring before God is my wretchedness by which I should be condemned. And here we have to understand the doctrine of sin. How bad are we in our sins? Scripture says we're dead in our sins. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, that we were dead in the trespasses and sin. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, where we once lived and carried out the passions of our flesh and its desires. We were by nature children of wrath. What did we deserve? Judgment. In this sin, Romans chapter 3, verse 10, 11, and 12 says this. As we're sinners, it says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, No one understands. No one seeks for God. For all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. It's not like we're all running around and we're saying, I really want God. And then God becomes the big meanie and says, no, no, I didn't elect you. It's not like people are pleading, oh, God, please, 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 I really want to be saved. And God's saying, no, 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 not for you. No, we are all living in rebellion. We are all not seeking God. We are all shaking our fists at Him, enjoying our rebellion, being under the wrath of God, living it out in desires of the flesh. And what would be fair is God to give us exactly what we deserve. But in the plan and purpose of God to show his majesty, he determines to save people out of that. He saves people out of that. And if you have put your faith and trust and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, God had a plan for you from before the foundations of the world. You just didn't know it. God showed you the gospel and someone came and preached it to you and someone was praying for you along the way. But God showed you mercy. What does God's mercy depend upon then? Does it depend upon something that I do? No. It depends upon the desire and will of God. God can can do what He wants. He won't violate his character. He's holy. And as holy, he's under no obligation to save anyone. But the great mystery of the gospel is that he would even make a plan and save people. And so it says in Exodus 33, 18, and this is one of the verses that Paul quotes. Let me give you the context. Moses said to God, please show me your glory. Up on the mountain of Sinai. Show me how great you are. Show me your glory. Show me your majesty, he says. And then God says, and he said, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And then this is what he says. 
and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. God says, I'm going to show you my glory. I'm going to show you my goodness. And what is the goodness of God? It's these very verses that Paul quotes. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. We need to be really careful when it comes to the doctrine of election. We don't want to make God kind of hard and mean. He's merciful and compassionate. But don't rob God of His glory. Don't rob God of His goodness. That the mystery of God is that He saves people. And He has planned this from before the foundations of the world. So Paul then says in verse 16, So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on the mercy of God, or excuse me, but on God who has mercy. What does salvation depend upon? Who is it anchored in? Who is it grounded in? Who does the first work to initiate any of it? Is it me? No. It's God. It doesn't depend on human will. I wasn't there saying, I need God and I want Him. And why won't you come to me, God? I was saying, I don't want you. I hate you. I can't exert myself for salvation. I can't say, I'm going to do enough good things and I will get it. And if I just respond and come to church every week, it depends on the will of God. And the will of God is worked out when we preach the Gospel. Because God will use the Holy Spirit in the preaching of the Gospel to call people's hearts to salvation. And they will receive Him by faith. But they do so because we're seeing the outworking of the plan and purpose of God. And so we have in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, speaking both of belief but also of the will of God. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. What is the means that you come into the family of God? You do put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice what verse 13 says. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God is the one who gives birth to you as a baby Christian. And I don't mean that in a physical way. But you're born of God because of the will of God. We may make an illustration here as long as we don't take it too far afield. When your parents had you, did you decide to be conceived I mean, did you decide to to crawl into the womb one day and say, you know, I like these two as mom and dad, and I think I'll be born of them, and then come out of the womb on your own? Uh, Your mom kicked you out. She got tired. The belly was so big. She's like, get out of here, as some of you pregnant ladies know when you get into those last months and weeks and days, and they drag on forever. But when you were born as a child, You grasped the air. I don't know if they still do it. They didn't always do it with our kids, but, you know, they used to make the big joke about spanking, smacking the kid on the bottom so they breathe. You know, when you're born, you just, (gasps) you breathe. And so it is with the plan and purpose of God. God in His will calls you. And so it is, you breathe. (gasps) I believe in Jesus. He's awesome. I've heard the Word of God. This is wonderful. Do I need to believe to be saved? Yes, absolutely. 
But I find it to be true that, that once I am saved, once I have placed my faith and trust in Him, God was doing a whole lot more behind the scenes before I came to faith than I ever realized. And the point is this. Give credit to God. Give Him the credit. And so we have Paul saying that God raised up Pharaoh even to harden his heart and display his glory. Moving right along into verse 17. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, for this reason I raised you up that I might show you my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So reading along in chapter nine of Exodus, Exodus chapter nine, verse 13 uh, through 17, the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh and say to him, thus saith the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve you for this time. I will send all of my plagues on yourself, uh, on you yourself and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you wouldn't have been cut off from the earth. In other words, I could have judged you already. And then he says this, but for this purpose, I raised you up to show my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against all my people. I will not. And will not let them go. God is saying to Pharaoh, you got too big for your britches. But who do you think is the one that gave you those britches? In the ancient world, and I'm quoting a scholar here, John Curid, he says this, the Egyptians described Pharaoh as eternal, worthy of worship and omniscient, end quote. He also goes on that Pharaoh's heart was considered, quote, the all controlling factor in both history and society. The hearts of Ray and Horus, the gods, were sovereign over everything. And God says, no, I'm going to show you my sovereignty. And so in Exodus chapter four, verse 21, when Moses is afraid of going before this king that everybody thought was omniscient. God says to Moses, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Exodus 7, 3, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 7, 13, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Exodus 7, 14, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Exodus 7:22. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Exodus 8:15. It speaks of Pharaoh. He hardened his heart. And we could go on and on for a several more verses. But the point is this. God had a plan and purpose for Pharaoh. And God raised Pharaoh up. And Pharaoh wasn't going along saying, well, God, how can I serve you? And then God said, well, I'm going to actually make you an enemy. Pharaoh was living in rebellion. And God even further hardened his heart. And God says, I put you here. I am the one that is holding you. In Scripture, it says that in God we live and move and have our being. That we all exist because God is allowing it. So Pharaoh here is rebelling against God. And God says, I've put you here for that purpose. So that in your rebellion, people would see how awesome I am. And the name of the God, uh, the name of my name would be proclaimed to the nations. To the ends of the earth. God said to Pharaoh in the outworking of the Exodus, and this is why I love the ten plagues, because he, he attacks different gods that they believed and held in. God says, I'm God, and you're not. 
and I do as I please. I've put you here, Pharaoh, for this purpose. And so it says in Romans 9.18, So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. The point is this. God can do what he wants to do. He can give salvation to some and show mercy. And he never gives salvation based on some kind of merit or value in the people. And he can withhold mercy and give people the wrath and the justice uh, and the judgment that each one of us deserves. Again, consider our sinfulness. It's not as if we are people desiring God and then God says, no, I'm sorry. Rather, we are all dead in our sins. In fact, Paul will say later on that in Israel, out of Israel, a remnant is getting saved. He is saying the plan and purpose of God is still going forward. Not that everyone in Israel gets saved, but a remnant chose by grace, as Paul will say. So you go over to Romans chapter 10, verse 21, and it says, And of Israel, he says, All day long I held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Then he uses the example of 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. That he's always preserving a remnant. Romans 11, starting in verse 4. But this was God's reply to him. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, it would no longer be grace. And as it says in verse 7, the elect obtained it and the rest were hardened. It isn't as if God's word failed. But if God had not chosen some to salvation... And he doesn't do it on the basis of works. He doesn't do it on the basis of what's inside of people. He does it according to the mystery of his grace. But if God hadn't chosen some to salvation, you know how many people would be saved? A big, fat zero. Nobody. And the question for you this morning is, do I believe in God? Do I trust Him? Do I understand His character? Do I believe that He is gracious and merciful, but He can also do according to His own will? And so, let me just make several applications. First, this morning, I realize this is a tough doctrine sometimes. This is hard. And we should wrestle with Scripture and we should say, is God really saying what what I think He's saying here? And maybe if I can use the expression, maybe for some of you, this is like blowing your mind. Whoa, election, that's heavy stuff. First, let me say, we're not done yet. We're going to keep moving through the passage and we'll see how the passages continue to answer questions. And we'll see how in the passage people individuals are still responsible for their own action. In fact, next week's question is, why does God blame us? Why does God still find fault? In other words, why do people go to hell then still? Salvation is, from start to finish, a work of God. Jonah 2.9 says this, Salvation belongs to the Lord. As you think about these doctrines, start there. Who saves me? Do I save myself? Am I bringing something to the table before God that should cause Him to respond? Can I motivate God to do anything? Or does God do according to His purposes and according to His will? Now, God delights in making us children. But did I initiate that? Or did God initiate that? Do I do the work and bring things to God? Is it by human will and human exertion? Or is it by the plan and purpose of God? At its core, 
This doctrine is the most basic question. Who saves whom? Did I use the English right? It's not who saves who, it's who saves whom, right? God saves people. And I don't bring things before God. I don't make bargains with God. I receive what He is giving. God accomplishes salvation then in such a way that He gets all the glory. The Scriptures say in, in 1 Corinthians 1.31, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I don't understand every single question you could ask about the doctrine of election. And we could debate it for a long time. And there are some things where you just get to a point and you say, I know what Scripture says, but beyond that, it's a mystery. But what you do get to say is God is awesome. God is bigger and more powerful and more sovereign and more holy and more gracious and compassionate than I could ever imagine. So that when I think about salvation, all I can do is look at God and boast. Meaning, I get to brag about God. God does these awesome things. And where would I be if He didn't do any of this? The question isn't, why does God elect some and not others? Although we do wrestle with that. The question is, why does God do anything? I'm not better than anyone else. This doctrine doesn't make me more special or prideful. I don't get to go around and be like, oh, well, I'm the elect. I don't get to say to other people, well, are you elect or not? I don't think you are, so I'm not going to share the Word of God. As the commercial says, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. But the point of it is, you and I can brag in God. Flip over to where this section ends in chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? And who has given to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. If you can understand all the judgments of God, He isn't the biblical God. If all of His ways are searchable by you, if you can wrap your mind around everything that there is about God and His work, you don't worship the awesome God in Scripture. And, and these passages and these doctrines should leave us just busting at the seams in worship. I don't know why God saved me. I don't. But God is awesome. And I know exactly where I would be if it wasn't for God. And this is why Paul, who believes this doctrine of election, can in the one hand say, I trust the promises of God. And in the other hand, can also say, I wish for my brothers in the flesh to be saved. I wish that I could be cut off so that more in Israel might be saved. If only that was possible. Because he knows in his heart, I don't deserve what God has given me. Election does not make us prideful. And, and if it does for you, you deserve a little kick in the pants. It humbles us. Who am I? Not only am I a child of wrath originally, but I'm finite. 
we look at ants and say how small they are. And that doesn't even compare to who we are before an infinite, holy, majestic God. As you think about salvation, make sure that you do not have a view of salvation that takes credit away from God. Make sure that your understandings of the doctrines, not only in the way that you articulate the doctrine, but in your own heart and worship, make sure in your understanding it leaves you to say, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. And we might even say boast only in the Lord. Because that's the emphasis of this passage. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our great and mighty God, put our hearts today on fire to see how great You are in this working of election. Not because we are special. Jacob wasn't more special than Esau. But because you are good. And you can accomplish your purposes. And so we can trust you when we pray for someone's salvation. That you will do what is according to your will and what is right and good. We can trust you when we evangelize. That you will cause people to respond to the Word of God because you are using the Word of God to call people, to change hearts, to work the Gospel. Lord, give us a sense of Your majesty that from before the foundations of the world, You chose us in Christ for the praise of Your glorious grace. In the mysteries of Your will, You are awesome. Give us a sense of that. Give us a foretaste of what that is like as one day we will be in heaven and and see the radiance of Your glory. Remind us today, even as Scripture said to Moses, that this is Your glory. That this is Your goodness. That this is Your name. The Lord who says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God, You are great. And we are not. Amen.